Welcome to the Fiat Podcast. Sharing powerful birth stories within a Catholic context. I am Nikki French. And I'm Laura Flaherty. Let's get started. Before we jump into Christy's interview, Laura and I are going to do a little bit of a Q&A. We had put a question box in our stories on Instagram, and we got three questions that we're going to answer here on the pod. So, Laura, uh, if you want to read the first one, I put together some information, so I'll go ahead and read that. All right. Uh, the first question we got was tearing versus episiotomy, which is better and why? Okay, so this one, um, episiotomy is still pretty routinely done uh, in American obstetrics. Um, in my opinion, a tear is going to be better in the long term. Um, a spontaneous tear heals uh, much better on its own. And the difference is that an episiotomy is basically a controlled tear, um, but controlled isn't inherently better than spontaneous and episiotomies have a more difficult time healing. So if you picture a piece of paper, if you were to cut it and then try to fit it back together, it wouldn't line up as easily as if you ripped it and then kind of, you know, yeah. put all of the curves back together. And if you picture like a zipper, that's what happens when spontaneous tears heal themselves. They grow back stronger to resist future tears in that exact spot. And so spontaneous tears also um, are, are perineums because we're made so incredibly perfect by our Lord. Our perineums know exactly where and how to tear to, pr to protect the structural integrity of our perineum. So if we're left to tear where we're going to naturally tear, it's going to produce better long-term results. One of the big, big risks with episiotomy is future tearing being significantly worse than if you just tear, you know, even with every birth, which most women don't, tearing after an episiotomy is going to be much worse than just tearing on it on your own. So how do we reduce tearing? We can reduce it in frequency and severity by birthing in a place that you feel completely safe by not pushing on your back, by pushing spontaneously rather than by being coached and by consciously surrendering your body, specifically your vagina, to the process of birth. And uh, one resource for more on tearing is uh, at Freya Kellett, that's F-R-E-Y-A-K-E-L-L-E-T on Instagram, and I'll link that in the show notes. Right. And I also have read a lot or have seen a lot also about like kind of to reiterate what you said, like your body, mm -hmm. when you tear, it's going to tear like where it needs to tear mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, where the weakest spot exactly mm -hmm. where it is. But when you have an episiotomy, it's that straight down line down the middle. Mm -hmm. It might not be necessarily where your body needs to tear. Mm -hmm. I think I've read somewhere about maybe some sort of diagonal line and mm -hmm. maybe not straight up and down. Mm -hmm. um, that might be a little bit better. But also, there's really rarely ever an actual medical yes. need yeah. <laughs> to have an episiotomy. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think, yeah. you know, maybe newer doctors that do sometimes do them uh, are 
I guess, sort of just scared of that whole the baby's mm-hmm. going to get stuck thing mm-hmm. or they think the baby needs to get out quicker because, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe there's a concern about the heart rate or something. Mm-hmm. But really rarely there's ever really a need that you have to have it done. So if right. your doctor it seems very gung-ho about doing them, I would definitely uh, ha- make sure you have someone on your side to be mm-hmm. like watching out for mm-hmm. um, that or, you know, go to a different care provider if possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I asked um, Kylie from the Autonomy Mommy if she ever felt like there was a time in which an episiotomy is medically necessary. And she said the only thing that she could think of was if literally mid-birth, you know, mid-crowning or the head's born born and the shoulders haven't, the placenta were to detach or something. And Mm -hmm. you literally had to like pull the baby out. But that, I mean, that would almost never happen. Like that's so... Mm -hmm. And for there to be such a high episiotomy rate, my mom, even though she had all home births, was still shocked that episiotomies are routine. Yeah. I mean, even from stuff that I've read recently, I mean, I thought it was becoming like really uncommon and not recommended to do anymore. So it's pretty shocking when the amount of people I've heard who've had them recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so let's get back to our next question is, what are the standard afterbirth medications for baby and why are they given? So there are three that are kind of standard right um, immediately following birth. One of them, I'm not sure if they are often or always given in a particular order, Um, but just for the sake of this one, we're going to start with a vitamin K shot which uh, vitamin K is what your blood needs in order to coagulate, which another term for that is clotting. Um, And it's given to prevent vitamin K deficiency bleeds, VKDB for short, um, which can be very serious, but are extremely rare. So for it to be routinely given um, is not, um, not prudent in my opinion. Um, and the, the risk of VKDB uh, is a brain bleed primarily. That's primarily the risk. But that's also a risk of giving the vitamin K shot. So you have to determine whether you want the very slim risk of developing the deficiency bleeds or the inherent associated risk of giving the vitamin K shot. So other risks um, with giving the shot include, but are not limited to, jaundice, hypotension, which is low blood pressure, and bradycardia, which is slow heart rate. Um, If you want to know more on vitamin K, uh, justtheinserts.com or at justtheinserts on Instagram have really good information. And Dr. Sarah Wickham has a book all about vitamin K. The second one is hepatitis B. So that vaccine is to prevent, obviously, developing hepatitis B or being harmed by having it. But the way that hepatitis B spreads is either by sharing um, a used or dirty needle or having, quote unquote, unprotected sex with someone who has hep B. And then if the mother has it, it can be transmitted to the baby during pregnancy and birth. So if you don't have it and you don't, you know, if you didn't get it from sex and you didn't get it from needles, you don't have it and therefore your baby doesn't have it. And if you know that you don't have it, it's not necessary. And again, with, with any intervention, there's a risk. So uh, hepatitis B, there's also um, on just the inserts 
information on that. And then the third one is erythromycin. And these are eye drops placed in the baby's eyes to prevent conjunctivitis due to ophthalmia neonatorum, which is abbreviated ON. And that is an infection and inflammation uh, in the baby's eyes as they pass through the birth canal. Um, but the most common cause of this is chlamydia. And the second most common is gonorrhea. So again, if you don't have them, you're not at risk for them. And the risks of the drops themselves include burning, stinging, swelling, light sensitivity, and in some cases, an allergic reaction just to the drops themselves. So if you don't have chlamydia or gonorrhea, you're probably going to be fine without them. And then you don't have the risk that comes with administering the drops. And the page on Instagram at Hey Empowered Mama, all one word, just had three consecutive posts on all three of these medications that are given immediately following birth. So she has more on there and she has evidence-based birth and stuff like that. If you wanted to know more. Right. Um, I'll just go over briefly. Uh, Cause these are all things that like I thought about with our last baby. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember with our first, if I did all of them or not. Um, I can't remember if I declined the eye drops at the time, but I know she had the shot, both shots. Mm -hmm. um, so I did, of course, more research and stuff while I was pregnant with Dorothy. Um, I think I decided on, I decided to do the vitamin K shot, but not the hepatitis B or the eye ointment. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, with the vitamin K shot, if there is, I think there's different versions of the shot. One, um, I think the most commonly given does have a preservative in it, which I think is where some of the side effects come from. Mm -hmm. um, and what it's most obviously most commonly given because it can be stored in like a vial that can be drawn from multiple times. Whereas the other version that you can get, I wish I had the info on it, uh, but the other version you can get doesn't have the preservative and it's like okay. just the vitamin K, um, which I guess maybe you could somehow request. I mean, mm -hmm. I, it doesn't seem like it's as widely used because it's only like a single dose vial. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe if you could get on it, you your hands on it yourself or have your doctor mm -hmm. somehow get their hands on it. That would be an option. Um, and then there's also, I think there's some, cause obviously no one wants their kid having bleeds or like things right. like that. Um, there's also some research being done on like just giving it orally for mm -hmm. like in a high doses at like different points throughout like the baby's first year or so. Right. Um, that looks fairly promising. So those are also options to look into, yeah. you know, this, hepatitis B or we're not around right. anyone who has it or is that mm -hmm. for having it so to me that makes no sense for it to be so standard and to have someone come to my hospital room to be like why aren't you giving this to your child it's just like <laughs> ludicrous to me I'm like uh because I did research and I decided I don't want to do that right now right <laughs> um and of course the eye drops I hear with the ointment they're like it's really you know there's not really any risk to it um so why not just go ahead and do it uh, sort of kind of thing but mm -hmm. one I mean who wants their kid to attention even if it's just stinging I mean I don't mm -hmm. want my ba newborn baby's eyes stinging and mm -hmm. two it clouds their vision so mm -hmm. you know that beginning like bonding hours are you know can be a little bit impacted mm -hmm. um, so for me personally I'm just like I'll just keep an eye out for infection I live you know 
in America where I have, you know, easy access to good medical care. If I notice an infection, mm-hmm. I will get it taken care of and will avoid, you know, they try to scare you with when you read about like the reason they want it is so the infection could cause blindness. And of course, no one wants their kid to go blind. Um, but again, the, I don't understand why in some place it's literally re- like required, like you don't have a choice in some That's states and in some, it's really strange to me. And obviously needs to be questioned. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's your choice, whether you feel, you know, you weigh the risks for yourself right. and decide what you want to do. But the fact that some hospitals, it's like legit required right. <laughs> sort of thing. And I'm like, and how, I don't know how you would stop them besides never letting the baby literally leave your arms. Um, Right. Well, and like with so many things that are required or standardized, it's like who, who is responsible if something does go wrong? Not them. Right. I mean, I think for all this, like when I said, I didn't want, you know, the hepatitis B or the eye ointment, I signed papers saying I was declining them. I mean, I have a problem signing a paper saying that I know the risks and benefits or whatever of anything and signing it. Right. Um, so I don't understand why that's not true everywhere. If it's not true where you live, I mean, contact your hospitals or whoever you need to mm-hmm. to change it. I don't know. It really bothers me. Yeah. Well, uh, and there's also, um, it's abbreviated ICANN, but it's Informed Consent Action Network um, that you can look into to see uh, what recourses there would be if if your right to medical freedom is being violated. Um, if you are somebody who really does or doesn't want something and you're getting a lot of pushback, um, you do have the right to decline literally any medical procedure for yourself and your child. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's just like they're literally just born. They're newborn babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it's not something that's going to like cause immediate harm or highly likely, I don't understand why it's so pushed right. heavily. All right. The next kind of big loaded question we have is what are the church's <laughs> teachings on circumcision? So uh, I'm going to preface this with, understanding that we all have um, the right and the ability to make this decision for our family. So even what I am going on to say is partly, you know, from the catechism, partly my interpretation, and you can take that with a grain of salt, do whatever you want. This is what the church has to say. So according to the catechism of the Catholic church, section 2297, quote, except when performed for strictly therapeutic, i.e., healing a disease, medical reasons, directly intended amputations, mutilations, and sterilizations performed on an innocent person are against the moral law, close quote. So again, in my opinion, because there isn't a medical reason to perform a circumcision, it would not be in accordance with this law. So the main reason given for circumcision that is outside of a cultural norm like Judaism is that it has a being circumcised has a reduced risk of UTI in the first year. So uncircumcised males have about a 1% chance of contracting a very treatable UTI in the first year. And the risk for circumcised males is about 0.1%. So it's 10 times higher for uncircumcised, for intact boys. But even then, it's only 1%. So you can determine whether the risk associated with a circumcision is worth the benefit 
of avoiding a 1% chance of a UTI. So because it's not done directly to treat an illness, it's done even at best prophylactically because being intact is not in itself a sickness. You know, every male is born with an intact penis and at least 25% of circumcisions have lasting negative effects from nerve damage and structural abnormalities to painful erections. I have a friend, actually a lot of my friends who've, whose sons have had circumcisions have had issues. And one of them, when asking her doctor about it, the skin of the shaft had started to try to grow over the glands, and which is a very, very common um, effect that circumcision has on their anatomy. And her pediatrician said, well, he'll probably just have painful erections when he hits puberty. And in my opinion, that doesn't, it does fall under the category of at least an amputation because it's surgically altering an otherwise healthy body part for aesthetic and connotative reasons. The connotation is that to have an intact penis is dirty, ugly, gross, weird, funny, and, or, you know, whatever people want to say. And it's often done so that the newborn boy would quote unquote match other males in his family. And to me, that doesn't track that every single male would be made by God and born broken. So in my opinion, and according to the catechism, that is what the church teaches about circumcision. Now, if you've circumcised your son or if your husband is circumcised, that that's not necessarily the, the church is, grants a lot of grace in this area because it is a gray area. And because according to cultural norms, it is in America, just the thing to do. So it's in no way a mortal sin. You didn't break your baby if you had it done or anything like that. So take all of this with a grain of salt. This is, this is just what I've compiled in response to this question. Yeah. I mean, I, obviously a really difficult thing. It makes me really glad I haven't had a boy yet. <laughs> right. I mean, cause at first I was like very, I mean, if we had had a boy four years ago, if Lucy had turned out to be a boy, we would have just automatically done a circumcision. Cause that's what my husband wanted to do. I hadn't really mm -hmm. done a lot of research on it. And I'm like, and I have had a, a kid at the clinic I work at and a, a friend of ours who, you know, when they were a little bit older as boys, young boys, they had some infection issues where they had to have circumcision done. And that was kind of sort of traumatizing. So I was always like, well, might as well just do it now and not have to worry about it later. Right. Um, sort of opinion. But even, you know, as you just, I mean, stuff that you just said, when you do some more research onto it and think about it more, it's like, yeah, like this is maybe just more of a cultural thing and not mm -hmm. necessarily like, is this really a medically necessary right. procedure to have done? Right. Um, and those sorts of things. So it's definitely, I mean, if you haven't really thought about it before, or, you know, you've been just kind of like me and just been like, no, that's weird. And I'm, why wouldn't you just do it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it is something to yeah. think about. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, a battle that me and my husband would probably have to go down. Yeah. Um, and I would have to educate him on if I, you know, before, you know, we had a son just so obviously he, I feel like everyone should have the informed decision. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not something I feel like a lot of us have really informed ourselves on. So, mm -hmm. well, and it's hard when, when we as the mothers don't want it 
And if the right. husband as the father does, we feel like, okay, well, we have to. Right. You know, I mean, not, yeah. Not only he's also like, well, he's a boy and it's right. Like, well, he's a boy. I'm not a boy. So maybe, you know, my opinion isn't as valid on it. Right. Sort of thing. I don't yeah. know. It, it gets very, you know, it's complicated, contentious sure. and complicated. Yeah. Uh, well, and so. I thought when we were having Jesse, I thought that it mattered to my husband. Um, all of the males in both families have been circumcised and I thought that it mattered to him that the boys you know quote unquote match and we were having a boy first so we mm -hmm. obviously had to have the conversation and it was the night before Jesse's appointment to be circumcised he was four or five days old and I was just holding him and I said mommy doesn't want tomorrow to come and my husband was like well what's going on my brother had just been over and had asked us, oh, why are you circumcising him? And we were like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so we had talked about it with my brother. And then when I said that, my husband was like, oh, why not? And I was like, I just don't, I don't want him to be in pain. And my husband was like, we don't have to do it. And I was like, what? <laughs> it's so crazy. Like when your perspective shifts, because it was such an automatic thing. And even several people had asked us in, in the time that we had found out we were having a boy to that night, you know, why are you circumcising him? Not even challenging, but like out of sheer curiosity, even my midwife. And every time my response was like, I don't know. And if current me had said that, I would have been like, there is no way that I don't know is a good enough reason to do this. But at the time, you know, I thought that it mattered to my I don't, I don't care, you know, whether he is in that night before the appointment, we decided not to go through with it. And I'm ultimately really thankful that we, that we did. That's just our conviction on the subject. Um, yeah. I'm ultimately really thankful that he didn't have to go through that. We didn't have to go through that and that we are lucky enough to have the opportunity to have the opportunity to um, educate and advocate. Right. And I also wanted to add in, I believe this was mentioned um, since we weren't finding out what we were having, we were having our first, uh, but they said, I believe my OB um, would even do the circumcision out of office. Cause I know most of the time it's routine for baby boy at the hospital be taken from mom or mom's not allowed to come with that kind of situation and obviously that's uneasy with people but I mean if that circumcision is something that you're planning on doing you can see if your OB will do it out of office or your pediatrician's office yeah. um, and that way you can still be with your baby yeah, um, and not have to be separated from them because I don't think I would be able to go through with it if right. my baby would just to be taken from me to have it done because right. right. I am possessive and no you're not taking my baby <laughs> Right. Uh, especially to do something that is potentially painful to them. So, right. well, and like with so many things um, with, with parenting and how it's looked at and all of the choices that we have to make, if you're not okay with something, there's probably a reason and you're allowed to and responsible for standing up for your baby. If you're not okay with, the risks, if you're not okay with the idea itself, look into it, pray about it, talk to your husband about it and come to a decision that you're both happy with and not one that you're 
you know, going to go on to regret. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I think that'll end our little Q&A. So yes. we will move on to our episode with Chrissy. Welcome back, everyone. Today I'm here with my co-host, Nikki. Hello. We are going to chat today with Chrissy. Hi. She's going to share about the birth of her daughter. Chrissy, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Chrissy. Um, I currently live in Chicago with my husband, but we met at the University of Dallas a couple years ago. Um, We got married in October of 2019 and conceived in November of 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, we're actually moving back to Texas and we're really excited about that. with our our daughter Josephine, who just turned ten months yesterday. That's so cool. Um, yeah. What part of Texas? Um, we're moving to somewhere in Dallas, although we haven't. Um, yeah. We haven't signed a lease yet, so we're still figuring out like what area we want to be in. Mm-hmm. But we're really happy to get back there. That's so cool. I think it's exciting. My yeah. sister just moved to Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty popular place these yeah, days. Yeah, I think everybody's moving to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chrissy. Right, so we'll say our Hail Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get started. All right. Yeah. Name Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, Christy, wherever you'd like to take us um, before your pregnancy or just partway through your pregnancy, um, wherever you'd like to start, go ahead. Sure. Um, so, I don't know why, but for some reason, I thought, um, you know. I probably won't get pregnant like right away. Like people really struggle to get pregnant and I'm not like, like when I got married, I was probably 10 pounds under my normal weight. And I thought that that might, I just, I just thought it would take a few months. So we were playing kind of, um, playing it kind of loose with the NFP. And so I knew that there was a chance that I'd conceived, um, the month after we got married, but I just like did not think that it would happen. I don't know, Mm -hmm. maybe because I've never been pregnant before. I just, I had a hard time kind of like accepting like that it was possible to get pregnant. I know that sounds like a little bit weird, (laughs) but um, so because I knew that there was a chance, I, I started taking tests like way before my missed period, which sounds kind of neurotic, but I, I just, I don't know. And so I took one on Thanksgiving, it was negative. And then I took one the next day and that one was negative too. And I actually, at the time I was working in anthropology. And so I was, it was four in the morning and I was on my way to uh, work Black Friday. And I saw that a friend of a friend of mine um, had shared a pregnancy announcement. And even though I thought that I did not want to get pregnant so soon. Um, I felt a little bummed that I wasn't, you know, I thought, Mm -hmm. and I was telling my husband, you know, isn't it funny that I'm kind of bummed, you know, maybe, maybe next time, or it'll be so exciting when we do get pregnant then. And then two days later, uh, it was positive and I was just completely shocked. And, um, 
so was he. And we kind of kept, we were living at his parents at the time, I should say. So we kept it secret for about a week and, uh, and we told his parents and they were super excited. And, um, at the time, because I was, uh, working a part-time job, I did not have health insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went to a crisis pregnancy center here outside Chicago called Waterleaf. If anyone is listening and, and you're in this area and I, at first I felt sort of guilty because I thought, you know, I'm not considering abortion. I, I'm married. Um, I don't want to, you know, use up any of their time or their resources. Um, but they really reassured me that they, you know, married clients, women in any circumstances they want to support. And so I was able to get two, um, two checkups there to confirm and then an ultrasound around, I think it was six weeks. And that was really, um, that was really special because, um, I wasn't able to get in with my midwives until 13 weeks. And so just to have that comfort of knowing, okay, yes, I am, I am pregnant and everything looks good and, and all of that. And so let's see, I, uh, and then I started a new job, um, at a law firm that mostly does pro-life and religious liberty cases, a nonprofit. And so that was really cool because I, uh, I felt like my pregnancy was really supported. Um, I didn't have to feel guilty about starting a new job and being pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, so my, my pregnancy, um, was really easy. Um, I, I didn't get sick, um, or anything like that. So that was really fortunate, but, uh, mm -hmm. during, so, so COVID happened and we're all working from home and I started walking every day. And I feel like a lot of people started walking during COVID, like <laughs> everyone just got outside and, but that was huge for me, uh, in my pregnancy because I felt like it was kind of an outlet and it kept me sane and it kept me, um, just like, it just gave me something to look forward to in my day. Um, mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like I had decided that I wanted to try to do an unmedicated birth. And so I, I kind of saw it as, you know, something like that, like almost like a marathon, um, mm -hmm. you want to sort of train for it. And so I would just like throw on my, my tennis shoes and and I would have that in mind. And, um, my husband and I, we took a Bradley class, which was really awesome. Um, and the instructor was great and we, uh, really liked her and she shared a lot of great stuff with us. But the, what I really felt like I was missing was the whole, um, like mental preparation for labor. Mm -hmm. I felt like I, I knew like the physiological part of it, but spoiler, by the time I was like in transition, I was like, I want an epidural. And so well, I'll get to that in a minute. But, um, but anyway, so 
My due date was August 13th, and my parents actually came up here to visit. Um, I was around 37 weeks, and my dad was going on a retreat nearby, and um, and I kind of didn't want them flying, and they didn't really want to fly, and so it, it was it just so worked out that they that they drove up, and I thought, you know what, I probably won't go late. So even if you're here like two weeks before my due date, you know, it, you know, I'll probably go into labor like around my due date. Mm -hmm. But I actually uh, almost went to 42 weeks, which was really hard on um, on me, like mentally. Uh, I I felt like every day. Um, I would run into somebody and they would say, wow, when's your due date? Or so my husband would get a text from somebody like, has Chrissy had her baby yet? Yes. And, and my parents were, I mean, it was such a special time having them here. We had just moved into an apartment um, and they were helping me like just, they, we were going to lunch every day. We were going on walks. We were, my mom was helping me unpack but I started to feel like, oh my gosh, my parents have been here for a month and I still haven't had my baby yet. Like I'm wasting their time or I don't know. That sounds kind of silly, but I started it's very, to. It's a very real feeling and people, mm -hmm. people even feel that way when they call their birth team together and then it's like a quote unquote false alarm or something like, but, but everybody took time out of their life for me and for this right. process. And to have not, you know, quote unquote, nothing to show for it. Like it's such a mental, you have to do cartwheels in order to like get around those feelings. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of frustrating. And I felt like, normally I'm very even keeled. I'm really laid back. I'm not, you know, the way that I am when I'm 10 months pregnant. And I just felt like we laugh about it now, but I felt like I was a monster. Like I was just super short tempered and like, just kind of, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But the, uh, so my midwives were, there was a few of them in the practice and um, I liked all of them. I liked some more than others, but um, they started uh, suggesting that, even though they knew I did not want to be induced, um, they delivered out of a hospital. And I guess it's the hospital's policy to not let um, mom go past 42 weeks, which, you know, it is what it is, I guess. Um, and, but I, I didn't think that that would happen to me. I thought, oh, I'll probably go 41 in four days or something like that. But mm -hmm. I ended up having to schedule, um, to be induced. And I just was praying that I, that I wouldn't see that actually happen. And I did acupuncture and I got, um, two membrane sweeps and felt like nothing was happening. Um, and at this point I'm 41 and four days, five days, maybe. So I was due on a Wednesday and they scheduled the induction for a Monday night. It was like at 9 p.m. or something like that. So that I guess I wouldn't go past the 42. At, like I think they were hoping that I would have the baby at um, the day before. And I was starting to panic. I was starting to like really 
panic because I didn't want to be induced. I didn't want, um, I knew if I was induced that my whole birth plan would just like go out the window and I would feel kind of like a failure, which is not true, but that's just how I was feeling. Um, so I read that, um, I don't know if it's Amish women or I can't remember some traditional in some traditional book that said women who are past their due date or who are trying to kickstart labor, like start a project, start doing something, get on your feet, distract yourself, start baking something really involved. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to get all the ingredients to make cinnamon rolls. And, um, I did, and I was on my feet and I totally got the kitchen. I turned it upside down, um, went to bed super late and I set my alarm for the morning. And the note in my alarm was call midwives and ask to, um, postpone one day. I just thought I just need one more day. Um, and then I woke up at four in the morning, uh, with, really intense contractions. And it's funny because I had been timing my Braxton Hicks like for weeks thinking, oh, here, there's one, you know, and mm-hmm. Braxton, nowhere near the same thing. Like mm-hmm. when I had a real contraction, I, I knew like this, this is it. Um, mm-hmm. So that started at four and I was able to sleep in between them because they were every like 30 minutes or so. But by around six, um, I woke my husband up and uh, basically for the rest of the morning, I was just between the tub and the bed and the tub and the bed. And he thought it was kind of funny. Like he didn't tell me this in the moment, but he had heard about like the loss of modesty thing that, you know, when, when labor really gets going, like clothes are off, modesty's out the window, like that whole self-awareness is just like gone. He, he was like, I didn't expect for that to happen so fast. Um, but I guess like labor just like really got going. And um, I was starting to, to sort of doubt. Um, so here's where the mental part came in. I, I didn't have the only, I guess, affirmation that I had in my head was I can do anything for one minute. And so that got me through a couple of hours, but I, I felt like I just like, I didn't have enough tools in my toolbox. Um, because it was really painful and I mentally, I could not, um, I couldn't get a grip. And so we called the midwife and she heard me over the phone and she coached me through some breathing and, you know, she, she was like, okay, I, I see that. And I hear that you've had a few contractions just since we've been on the phone. So why don't you go ahead and, and come down to the hospital? And, um, I, there, uh, in that hospital, they had an alternative birthing room. Uh, and so there was like a big tub and a big bed, but you could only use that room if you weren't going to have an epidural. And so pretty immediately I, uh, I got in the shower with the big yoga ball and that felt really good. The only thing that felt okay was to be like on my knees draped over like the couch or the, like a birth ball. Um, 
because the contractions just felt like so much more. I felt like I was being sawed in half and I, I don't know why I, I underestimated how painful they would be. And part of me thinks that I was holding a lot of tension and stress and worry and anxiety like in my body. Mm-hmm. And I think that because I, in the days leading up, weeks leading up to labor, I, I wasn't fully relaxed. Um, and with every day that passed, past my quote unquote due date, I felt even more tightly wound. Um, you know, I wonder if that's kind of what made it so painful. Um, yeah, but there's, there's definitely like a fear, pain, tension, you know, cycle that's happening. Yeah. 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 Also, I highly relate to being feel like you're being sawed in half. That's how I felt with my first. <laughs> it, but also afterwards, like talking through that uh, labor experience with my doula, she's like, I definitely think your baby was posterior. And that's where a lot of women feel back labor and like that really intense, horrible um, pain has to do with baby's positioning as well. Yeah. I don't know if Josephine was I don't think she was posterior, um, but man, she, like, yeah, it's no, no fun to deal with. It's no joke. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, so let's see. I, so I, I, then I went to the tub and so when I actually got to triage, um, I was greeted by my favorite midwife. So I was actually really relieved about that. Um, I liked them all, but, you know, definitely had a favorite. Uh, And she was just so reassuring. Um, I was almost a six. And that was such a relief because I thought, man, if I get to the hospital after hours of this and I'm like a two or three, I'm just, I don't even know. I just, I'll be devastated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so probably by so I went into labor at four o'clock um in the morning and probably by three or four in the afternoon I just I was asking for that epidural and I think part of the reason that I that I just caved and and I don't say that to like everyone whether you get an epidural or not like there's no right or wrong way to do it. Mm -hmm. I just, because I had decided, like I had made my birth plan, I just wanted to stick to it. I just want, I felt really convicted and I just was trying my best to stick to what I, what Mm -hmm. I had envisioned. Um, It's not caved objectively. It's caved subjectively. (laughs) It's, It's just that you didn't want it. Not that it's in and of itself a bad thing. Totally. Totally. Um, but it's, it's kind of hard to, like, be st- strong-willed with sticking to that when the epidural is literally across the hallway. Like, mm-hmm. you just have to say the word, and mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's right there. You know, I thought mm-hmm. if I was at home or if I was at a birth center, I think I, it wouldn't have felt so tempting, like, because mm-hmm. knowing that it was right across the hallway it was all I could think about was just Mm -hmm. epidural it's right there like just sweet relief like all it will take is like 20 minutes um 
so I ended up getting it and I mean it definitely was a relief it was a huge relief um it was pretty immediate and I was able to rest um I hadn't eaten anything since dinner the night before but I had you know it was was kind of funny I only threw up one time in my entire pregnancy and it was in labor um Mm. And one of my nurses gave me some Tums uh, out of her purse because I, I was like, I don't really know what that will look like on my on my bill. Like one Tums could probably be like 50 bucks. Like who knows? Right. <laughs> um, so by around nine o'clock, uh, 9.15, I was, I was at a 10 and uh, I pushed – for 10 minutes and she was born at 9:31. Um and I I was totally in a daze. Like I felt like a little bit slow. Like everything was like happening to me. Mm-hmm. Um I was a little bit slow to bond. I, I it wasn't like extreme, but um I didn't have that just like rush of joy or I don't know, like what other people feel. Um, I just felt like, like a little bit stunned. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't even realize that I had a second degree tear until she told me that she was going to do some repairs. And um, yeah, and then we, uh, we ordered pizza and it never arrived. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. How big, how big was Josephine? What was she her was eight pounds, 15 ounces. Nice. So that's, I mean, yeah, I pushed her out in 10 minutes. She was pretty big. That's probably maybe why I tore. Um, and then we were out of the hospital 24 hours later. That's so cool. I wish that we had just left when I had Charlie. <laughs> I know that probably sounds terrible, but. Well, you know. <laughs> I I was really appreciating the nurse's help because Mm -hmm. I kind of underestimated how scared I would be to like handle my newborn baby because I have nieces and nephews and I thought, oh, like I know how to hold a baby. But I, I mean, even like changing her diaper, I was so scared of like handling her Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it felt really comforting, um, to have some help, but yeah, we, we decided we don't want to stay here any longer than we need to. Um, we don't want like a humongous bill. Oh, speaking of bills, I got a $4,000 bill from the anesthesiologist because my, um, epidural provider, the anesthesiologist was out of my network. And the last few days realized that that's a thing. So I think so, it was Tranquility by Hehe on Instagram was like, are you making sure that an epidural is covered in your hospital birth? And I was like, I didn't even know that it would be a possibility that it wasn't. I Yeah, it never crossed crazy. my mind. So PSA, uh, yeah, just make sure that, um, that that's covered because they really like, and I tried, I mean, I'm still kind of, 
battling that one. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really frustrating because you budget and you make plans to spend a certain amount on your on your birth and your care, and then you get kind of surprised with that. But but you know, at the end of the day, it's not the biggest the biggest issue. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so we went home and. Um, that night I was super, uh, super tired and, uh, Josephine just, if she wasn't latched on one side or the other, she was crying and that mm -hmm. totally like took me by surprise. I don't know. I just thought she would, cause she slept in the hospital. Like she was just yeah. sleeping the whole time. And then we came home. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? <laughs> what, like, what did I get myself into? And so it was really great to have, uh, have my mom here. I mean, she would just take her from like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. and sit with her like in the armchair while I slept just like every mm -hmm. night that she was here. That's so, nice. <laughs> um, so it was, it was pretty difficult the first couple of weeks and after she was born, um, I think I had a little bit of postpartum depression and anxiety that I kind of just suppressed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a big part of that was just being totally sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. And um, that I feel like for a lot of people that kind of exacerbates a lot of mental like mm -hmm. struggles. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But... It's just, it's good to have family nearby, to have people to support you and to, to be able to communicate when you need, when you need help, when you need a break. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I can't believe that she'll be one in two months. <laughs> mm -hmm. So important um, question, did anyone make ear cinnamon rolls that you were preparing <laughs> right before you went into labor? I, yeah. So they were completely done before I went to bed that night. And I was able to enjoy them when we got home. <laughs> that's wonderful. I'm like, that's so important. You spent all that time. <laughs> yes. And uh, when we were gone, uh, my mom and my mother-in-law, they came and they cleaned our whole apartment for us. And Oh, that's so nice. Yes. So the whole mess I made in the kitchen was completely clean when I came home. Wonderful. <laughs> Did you have anything else you wanted to add or maybe some advice for uh, like a first time mom or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I feel like one of the other areas where I, I feel like as a new mom, you get into a groove and you think I got this, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing really well. Like the past couple of days have been good. I feel like I know what I'm doing. And then, or, you know, especially with like sleep, for example, like you kind of come to terms with the fact that your baby doesn't sleep the way other babies sleep or the way that you think other babies are sleeping. Right. And you realize that that's perfectly normal and you're, you know, you're supporting your baby with their needs. And then somebody will say, Oh, is your baby a good baby? Like, and, and you think, why is that the first question that, that you're asking me? Like it's that question. Yeah. It's the worst question ever because of course they're a good baby. I'm it like, implies that there is a bad baby. Out my there. Ba yeah. My baby's not a bad baby. You know, she's not sleeping through the night, but that doesn't make her a bad baby. And so make if you're listening to this baby. and your baby is not sleeping through the night and you think that they're supposed to be 
if they're younger than if they're one. younger than one, yeah. don't sweat it. I mean, it's hard because everyone wants to sleep through the night. And it's hard to do that when your baby's not doing that. But it's perfectly normal. And um, there's nothing there's nothing to feel bad about. And you shouldn't feel guilty if you stray from your birth plan or the one making that decision. Because another thing is that hospital providers and nurses and doctors they'll be very quick to make decisions for you if you aren't actively asserting like your desires and what you want. So if you don't step, like you have to be like kind of one step ahead when you're in a hospital. Yeah, I agree. Nothing should be happening that you are not okay with. Exactly. Yeah. So would you recommend to anyone the Bradley course or do you feel like that helped you like, Oh, I, I know you said it didn't really prepare you mentally, but um, other than that, you know, I feel like it was me, helpful. I'd recommend it. I really liked my instructor. She had um, she offered a sliding scale when it came to payment and stuff like that, and she was just she went above and beyond. Like, if I could have had her as my doula, I would have because I was texting her the night before my induction, like, and she was giving me all of these tips and. So I think that it's a good method. I think that it could be supplemented by, I kind of may, if next time around, I'm, I'm interested in like hypnobirthing or something like that. Something that's a little, I don't know. Um, I just uh, started following the Christian hypnobirthing on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I think they have an app, like they have an app that you can like. That one is so good. Um, That sounds really interesting for me for next time, possibly, because I, even though, like, I prepared a lot more for my second birth because I really wanted to redeem myself, you know, and go um, unmedicated, I still, like, when I was in that transition period, I was still go- thinking in my head, like, next time I'm getting an epidural, I'm like, I'm not doing this again. And, like, really, just because I had my doula there, and I'm like, no, I did all this work and prepared for a natural labor. I'm going to stick it out and do it. But I was like, next time I'm definitely getting an epidural. Yeah. Um, I feel very differently now after I had the baby. Yeah. That's like, even immediately after, I was like, no, I'm still not sure I really want to go natural next time. (laughs) Or, you know, I'm medicated. But, you know, know, now that we're almost a year out, I feel very convicted to once again go unmedicated. But it definitely plays a mind game when you're in that much pain and you're not Mm -hmm. really prepared to handle it mentally. Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. I feel like um, that's another thing next time around. I, my husband is awesome. He's super supportive and um, he was a great labor partner, but he's not a doula. And I, I think that I really could have used that, that kind of help and that kind of support. Mm -hmm. So I'll definitely be looking into that. Um, next time around. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. You can find us on Instagram at fiat.podcast. And please leave us a rate and review and we'll see you next week. Bye.